0: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Embed Podcast. I am your host, Seamus Medan. And today, Oscar Munoz, the former CEO of United Airlines, joins to discuss his journey from growing up in Mexico to becoming the first Hispanic CEO of a major airline. Prior to United, Oscar held several leadership positions over at PepsiCo, Coca-Cola, AT&T, and CSX. So first off, thank you, Oscar, for taking the time to join the show. It's a pleasure to have you on today.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Seamus. It was, uh, I love the way you reached out, and I'm glad the way we connected. Uh, it's a treat to be able to talk to you and meet you, and congratulations on the success of your podcast.
0: Thank you. I appreciate it. It's great to connect as well. So I think before we you know, we dive into your career, I think first off, what is the earliest thing I need to know about you to understand who you are and all that you've accomplished?
1: Ah, well, uh, if you read all of the resume and business accomplishments, as somebody once said, that is what I do. It is not who I am. I am the oldest of nine kids, immigrant, which you know is a common story nowadays. There's an old uh, uh, a Tennyson quote from his uh, poem, um, uh, Ulysses, that says, I am parts of all that I've met. And I-, I would say that from my humble, humble beginnings in another country to the evolution that I've had over the course of my life, Reaching up to this point, if I pointed to five or six different occurrences along the way, it had to do with humans, other humans, who actually decided that they would give a hoot about someone like me, saw a level of promise, uh, a level of of possibilities, and were willing to take care. So That has forged a person who, in my leadership style and my interactions with other humans, I, I try, as always, to be helpful, uh, to provide guidance if needed, but most of all, to be kind and to listen and to really appreciate this concept that we all are part of. And for you and your audience, and so much is in the future, so much is that. But there's a lot of wisdom that's gained with experience. And I, I hope to be able to impart that to people without being that old guy that says, <laughs> Well, young man, when I was growing up, we had to walk six miles. Exactly. In the <laughs> I grew up in Southern California. That doesn't always fly with my kids, but nevertheless,
0: <laughs> yeah, that's super fascinating. You mentioned you were an immigrant from Mexico. What was it like growing up in Mexico with your grandmother, with your mother being in the United States uh, away?
1: You know, it's um, it, most of it is vague. I came to the to the U.S. Pro, I was in, I think, third grade. I was seven or eight years old. Um, I know these things specifically, but I just can't remember right now. Uh, so, um, so much of that time was a little bit of that formative haze where you don't quite remember. But, but there are so many things that that I knew for a fact. You know, having my own children, the concept of nurturing, the concept of love, the concept of caring, the concept of always having something around me that supported my well-being is what I remember most, meaning, you know, despite the fact my, I I, mean, I grew up with my grandmother, my mom did come to the United States to sort of forge a better life for herself and then come to get me. Uh, This sounds a lot more dramatic than it does. My grandmother did not have her own, own place. We didn't have a home, but we went around to different family members over the course of thing. And one thing about Latino families, if you understand the term familia or family, it has such a deep resonance in our culture so wherever you go, somebody's always got their door open and says, "Come on in." And you know, we slept on couches or rooms off to the side and and traveled by bus and by train. So I remember those journeys, holding her hand. Uh, but above all, I remember she cared deeply for me, uh, was always protective, and most importantly, I learned so much from her work ethic. Uh, never in her entire life did I hear her complain about anything. So again, these formative years that really sort of form who you are is what I remember most because I I draw upon those early days and the subsequent years where I got to know her even better and meet more of her friends and relatives or associates. Um, how important that became a part of my leadership style is really what what it comes down to.
0: What is probably, you would say, one of the most important lessons that you took from your grandmother during your time in Mexico that you've taken throughout uh, the rest of your career?
1: I think um, this this kindness and generosity of soul. You know, you, you we meet people along the way, and you probably have and will do so, where <clears throat> there's just a shining aura of light around these folks where you just know that whatever you need, whatever you have to say, whatever, they're going to be there for you. She was not a wise woman. She was not an educated woman. But she would always sort of course correct me in certain places. And this was all through my career. So as a young child, I'm young, I'm holding her hand, I'm, I'm, I'm leading her way. But in subsequent years, when I faced big decisions in my life, I would always call her You know, two or three times a day, usually when I was driving home from work, And she didn't understand the concept of business. I mean, honestly, um, when uh, she asked me one day what I did, and I was the the chief financial officer of a region of Coca-Cola, and she didn't know what that meant. She goes, well, what does it do? And so I tried to explain in somewhat lame terms of what I did. And you could just see her puzzled face thinking, because in her world and how she grew up, the concept of work was you, you, you work. So if I worked at Coke, She probably thought I either made the Coke or delivered the Coke, right? That's the work part. But when she sees me talking about, you know, what essence is a desk job, shuffling papers, uh, I could tell that she probably thought, oh, my poor mijo, my my son, that he's not bright enough to do (laughs) (laughs) those things and put that up. So I always remember her just, you know, very deep human wisdom when I wanted to complain about something or say, oh, grandma, this stuff is going on and this. And then she would just listen and she would just say one or two things like, you know, is that something you really want to do or is that really something that you should be upset of? So she always kind of level set all of these things. And uh, and she was just so marvelous at that because, you know, her kindness and generosity of soul, as I said before, was so strong that, you know, when you left talking to her, it was almost this relaxing therapy thing where you came up and you said, you know, I guess I don't have to really be smart about that. I think the most important part It saved my cookies on a couple of occasions where had I really pushed hard for what I was sort of whining about, uh, and if that had come true, it probably would have had a a negative impact on my career and life. And so uh, in her own way, she was always, always, again, protecting uh, and nurturing me throughout her
0: life. And you mentioned Coca-Cola when you took roles over at Pepsi and then the former CFO of Coca-Cola. What then uh, attracted you to the beverage industry?
1: Well, I started in the beverage business right out of college, um, so it's one of those things where you know, again, back to my heritage and upbringing. Uh, the concept of college was lost on me, and it took a couple of people to interject themselves in my life to to let me know how important that was. Uh, and and then, of course, when you're getting out of college. I, you know, it's like there was no question that I had to get a job because I didn't have the luxury or the economic sort of support to take a year off or, 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 you know, do a lot of the wonderful things that a lot of your listenership is doing, entrepreneurial issues. It was a, it was not only a generation, but a necessity for me to find a job. My son is graduating from USC, Southern Cal uh, in a couple of weeks. And I told, I always tell him the stories. This is back in the day when you had to type up and I don't type very well, type up, you know, application letters for jobs, and then I, I would post the rejection letters all over my apartment room, uh, just to remind me that you know life is just what it is, and no complaining. Like Bolden, it's like so. I made out, I made wallpaper out of rejection letters, um, and then uh, interestingly, I, I got a job not at Pepsi but at Mattel, which is I lived in Southern California where the headquarters is. I didn't want that job at Mattel. It was a it was a cash management job in Treasury. not I was a financial analyst and I wanted to do something, but there was nothing forthcoming in that regard. And so um, I took the Mattel job for what ended up being just a little under two weeks because a week into the job, I get this letter from Pepsi. And again, Pepsi, I mean, that was like 200 applicants and round after round of interviews. And I'm like, OK, I'm there. I obviously didn't get it. So it comes through. And uh, it was a better job. It was a right job. They paid a lot more than the cash management. So that was my first moral dilemma. It's like okay, just go into your boss and you know say you're you know you're moving away or you're doing something and you can't continue the job. And I had all these questions. Then I walked in and I thought again back to my grandmother. I said, you know what? I, I should just be honest. This is just it's going to come back to me somewhere. So I walked into my boss and I said, I am so sorry, but you know I this other job. So I went. And uh, again, the first moral dilemma, and I think the first right decision. But that's how I got the Pepsi job. So I didn't necessarily pick it uh, or choose it. And I know a lot of times in today's world, uh, everybody's asked to have a direction and a specific objective and a passion for all of these things. Sometimes you get into things and you start doing them, and you you enjoy them, and you you know you sort of develop. Um, the expertise and the passion for it—it it becomes something you do. So I, I didn't pick it, uh, Sheamus. It was just something that, that came up. I loved it, and then that led to the Coke job, and then so on and so forth.
0: And for other entrepreneurs in the audience who might be thinking about leaving their current job to either found a company or go on to a different role, what advice would you give them on how to leave it off with their current employer?
1: Never burn bridges first and foremost, uh, and and never. Make these decisions out of sheer emotion, um, and what do I mean by that? Well, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, and you know this, have a, a wonderful, driving, courageous passion to do all of these things. And in today's day and age, you have a ton of examples of people that have lived up to that. And the stark facts are that most of the people that go off on their own, unfortunately, you know, not everybody can make it, and so. But that doesn't deter a true entrepreneur, so you need to go go after it. Um, I would not leave a job because I am so upset at what I'm doing. I hate my job so much. That I'm just going to go out and do something on my own. I can do it better without, honestly, a little proper planning, uh, business case aspects. I mean, if you could get some money from someone, do you have that funded? Um, because it's it's tough out there in today's world. There's everybody out with, Everybody's out with their hand saying they have a great product, they have a great idea, and for people and i run a venture fund uh start a venture fund uh, ourselves and we see this all the time we get hundreds of people app- uh, applying and of course over time we can only invest in a few and we ask certain questions so get your collective stuff together you know you get here's your here's not only your product plan and, and how wonderful that is how does it ramp how does it grow how does it make money for your investors because that's what they ask for Don't fall in love with your product would be my my thing because everybody falls in love. It's like, oh, Oscar, you don't know. This is going to do this. And it's going to revolutionize the world. And it's like, I I hear you, but I just heard 20 other people before you who said the same exact thing. And so do a little bit of your homework, take your time, and then at the right time, then make the change. And when you leave, if you're currently employed, there's no need to sort of flip them the middle finger as you're walking out. I mean, there's just no need. You never know, A, if you're going to be back, and B... I don't know what it's going to serve, honestly. And again, I don't know people's certain situations. There may be cases when you have to do that thing. But I always live my life with um, just there's no reason, again, from my grandmother, just to treat other people with respect and dignity as you would wish to be treated yourself.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that I think about is you control your business, your business doesn't control you. And I think that's one of the things that's important to keep in mind, especially when you're building your own company. Um, But the people that you surround yourself with, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, really make up the different parts of who you are, who did you or currently do turn to for advice when you're faced with difficult life decisions? And why?
1: Uh, and, you know, that's a good question, because I think as you uh, gain experience, you tend to seek your own counsel based on your gut instinct. I think one of the things about about aging and having lots of experience is that you, you learn to listen to your instincts much more because you've now had a lot of practice when you've gone against them, uh, certainly that. But we all have mentors and we all have friends. And so there isn't any one person in particular. There are many people again. Back to the concept of you're all you're the sum of all the all the folks that you've met. Um, there are people that are very gifted in certain areas, how to communicate, how to deal with sensitive issues, uh, whether it's a real technical issue and something. So you're always looking. But I would say I am a voracious uh, I, I, data and information is so wonderfully available. You can do so much information sharing on your own, and then come up with a couple of questions, find somebody in that general area, and then go ask them, is, is how I do it. There's always been people around me where I've had bosses or, you know, some board of directors that you you guide to. I, you know, I wrote a book recently, and the person I went to was a guy named Walter Isaacson, who is arguably one of the greatest living American writers today, and he's had some great things. And so, you know, I reached out to him and say, you know, I, I'm thinking about this, but you know, my writing skills not like his, all that sort of thing. And uh, he goes, you yeah, know, take a shot at it, write something. And so I did. And I sent it to him for a quick review. And he came back with said, you know, um, there's something here. And so we decided to kind of go further. So I think, uh, you know, the, the the issue with mentors and guides is twofold. Uh, the mentor really has to appreciate the 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 there's a it's a big burden and it's a big initiative for me personally to take on a mentee because I want to know more about you, I want to know what makes you what your your chemical and and DNA makeup about how what drives you so that my guidance fits you. I think we today because we have so much information, so many wonderful pieces of advice, we find or hear something that makes sense. Yeah, we should do that, but it may not be your thing. In a very simple way, uh, you know, there's things like you should always start a speech with a joke, right? To loosen up the ground. Hey, that's great. Let's try that. If you're not funny, <laughs> you probably shouldn't tell a joke, right? Uh, and, and so uh, we, we like to read things and that's going to be the saving grace for everything we do. Pick your mentors wisely. Make sure they care about you. Make sure they have, you know, the right um, mental frame for being, uh, being, um uh, for being helpful. I, I personally, when someone walks around as says, Well, I mentor 78 people, um, I, I find that a little off-putting because unless you're spending every waking moment of your day thinking about those 78 people, I'm not sure you're providing advice. And so I take questions that are asked of me by people asking the questions mm-hmm. very seriously, to the point where if you ask me a question, and I'll say Seamus, you know what, there's a couple of different ways of doing that. Let's talk about it more. Let's refine the question. Um, I don't know much about that, so maybe there's a better person. Or let me think a little bit about that more. And and um, that takes a lot more human effort and engagement than just say, well, you know, Seamus, and then tell a story about yourself, or or say, you know, the, the flippant things that I always like to, you know, follow your passion and do all these sorts of things. There's just some there's some really strong. Um, directions that maybe aren't the best ones and the ones for all. One of the things I say to people, or I, and I talk a lot, is the concept of listen, learn, and lead. And then I go to describe what listening is, and I describe what the learning path, and then, and just so that people understand from a broader perspective, as well as from a tactical perspective of what it means. And then in the context that somebody that I'm talking to said, so in your case, I would say, Shavis you know, uh, this is what I would do. This is a thought for you. And again, they're all thoughts. They're not prescriptive. Like, well, hey, there's only one way to do this because that's not the case. So, you know, the concept of having your own opinion, uh, your own viewpoints and thinking for yourself can easily be lost in a world of massive information overload because it always sounds so good. Um, No, I know you had Mark Cuban on or something. It's like, you know, he's wonderful and he's done all he has. So we want to hang on to every single word. But if you really get inside what he's done, he's worked his ass off. He's had lots of balls. And, and uh, you know, and, and what he said might have worked for him. But you have to make sure that you know yourself. So at the end of all that long soliloquy, <laughs> the concept of knowing yourself is a really important thing, especially as you're younger, because we tell ourselves what we think we are, what, what we're good at all the time. Um, we may or may not be. And over time, allow people to come in and say, hey, gee, am I really good at this? Or do I need some improvement? So keep that door open, get feedback, know yourself. And then when you ask questions of people, I, I think you have a better um, filtering system to see what applies to you versus not.
0: How do you know then whether you truly do know something or you think you know something?
1: Oh, my God, that's a great question. Our brains I know you know a lot of the people that you'll interact with. You know everybody's smart nowadays, um, and the physiological aspect of our brain power is that it is geared to protect us and geared to give us the positive things. When you're very smart, and I work with some really, really, really smart people, and but sometimes they don't have a lot of the you know strong social cues, the EQ and IQ sort of kind of balance that we all read about. Um, and, I, and, I, and, and one of the things I've learned in having these people work for me, in essence, is they'll often be ostracized as being jerks or arrogant if they're really smart. Um, and what you find is when you spend time with them, um, you see that what causes that arrogance or that aloofness isn't character. It's their brain saying, you know, there's a problem there. I've fixed it. I'm not sure why we're sitting around waiting and talking about it. I got this. And so rather than uh, that's how their brain works and their chemistry. And so what you need to teach them is, is, well, rewire part of that intellectual side of the brain to say, so being right is part of the process, being effective and actually initiating change or action or actually finishing an objective requires the other side of your brain that says, all right, I think we have an issue. How do I get everybody around me? to understand that that's the right question. And then everybody has their part to make it work. So being right and being smart is a wonderful God-given gift. You know, You're never going to lose it. But the more you understand that there should be other people around you that can help you do it and how you bring them along, especially at senior levels that I've been so blessed to achieve, you know, walking around saying you're the smartest person and everybody should do what you say, it's almost impossible to do to some degree because there's too many pieces. I mean, you know, in my heyday, that, gosh, United was well, 100 plus another 40,000 people that worked for us in some way, 70 different countries, 180 million customers being touched over the course of a year by all those folks. You're talking a lot of individual sort of one-on-one interactions between one of my wonderful employees and one of my wonderful customers. And the potential for something going bad is really high. So, um, so you know, there's a lot to be said for that, you know, that ability to understand yourself.
0: And when you eventually did transition from CSX to United Airlines, how did it feel to be the first Hispanic CEO of a major airline? Huh.
1: Uh, <laughs> we didn't know. I've never known. I've always been. It, it feels like one of the youngest or one of the first. Um, what I've learned to, to say in a world of increasing levels of diversity and inclusion and acceptance is that, honestly, I'm so tired of being the exception to things, like the only to this or the first to do that. I want to build, and in this new chapter of my life, uh, I want to go away from this concept of, of being the exception uh, to being the expectation for young kids like me that are all throughout this country, where it's like, hey, look, you know... Uh, you know, a young African-American kid can say, I can be president now, right? Because we've had that. Women feel that they can do, and certainly in my community, that there's that you don't have to do just what, you know, what is in front of you. There are broader reaches. And so, you know, to your question, what did it feel like? I I never thought about it. I've never thought about it. I've always thought about my ethnicity only when someone raises it to me. Um, And I've always thought of myself, there's a uh, there's a great quote from the first uh, the first black pilot in in at United again named Bill Norwood, who said famously he grew up in Lower Alabama and Jim Crow era. And he says, you know, you learn very quickly in my community that you have to work twice as hard to get half as far, um, and that always resonated with me because that working heartbeat. When I talk about this concept to people. I said, listen, bias exists in this world today. Is it better? Yes. Not a lot better necessarily, but the concept of how you can help yourself, you can sit around and whine and complain and woe is me. Nobody's giving me the credit. Nobody. I'm being shut out of things. You can do that or you can just really work hard and watch how that actually manifests itself into a trajectory of your career and your chosen path in a way. One of the reasons I started my venture fund, it is for Latinos and Latinas founders and it's because they don't get money from all the sources. And just because the people that have money see that community and say, well, I don't have a lot right. of history with them. They don't have a lot of history. So I'm going to go with the standard folks that I know. Um, and and so rather than complain, rather than bitch about it, rather than beg people to do it, uh, we raised our own money and doing it ourselves. And, and our hope is to provide proof, not just promise, of the ability of this cohort in America.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things that have come up a lot on the podcast about pattern recognition. It can be a good thing, but it can also do yourself quite a disfavor. (laughs) I noticed when I joined uh, Columbia Business School part-time for the past year or so, we created this program called EC America to find Latinx entrepreneurs in the United States and bring them and connect them to Columbia's resources to help grow and expand their businesses. So I definitely do see that. But you mentioned your point earlier, how at your aid time, you're managing around 140,000 employees. When I brought up this question with Spencer Raskoff, at that time, he was the former CEO of Zillow, he had around 350 employees. And I asked him, uh, how do you manage uh, a culture with 300 plus employees? He said it was really difficult. Um, I can only, I can't even imagine how you manage culture with 140,000. What were some of the things that you did to help manage culture with that many people?
1: You know, it was, it was probably not managing culture, but, uh, undoing. Uh, so United and merger, United and continental merged. And when I became CEO, they had been embroiled in contract negotiations with union employees, which represent 80 plus percent of the, of the company. Um, so we had bad labor relations. We had internal teams inside of the management group sort of fighting with each other because I was I wore blue and you wore red, and you know that kind of uh, conflict and content. Um, our operations sucked, our financial measures were dropping. Customers really didn't like us whatsoever. So we had a whole mishmash of things. And so the culture that I found as I dug into it was one of disenfranchised, disengaged, disillusioned people didn't care. Now, that's a large number of people to have walking around. And remember, we have an industry where it's, it's, it's very much decentralized. There is no, quote, factory floor. I mean, there's you know two flight attendants on a plane or four flight attendants. There's two pilots. Uh, and, they, and they come to the plane from different places. There is not a huge amount of gathering places. But the power that I quickly learned in that business was they all talk to each other. In some way, shape, or form, they were part of the process. And what I sense right from the start to your question, how did we go about sort of fixing, uh, rectifying, uh, whatever term you want to use with regards to that, uh, you know, everybody wants to know. The street wants to know how you're going to bring numbers back. Customers want to know how you're going to improve service. Your board wants to know. Everybody has, and everybody has ideas. My immediate decision, and this is based on my upbringing, this is back to my heritage comes in. Uh, and it's like, you know what? I'm going to go ask the people that actually touch the customer every single day. So my first sort of public announcement was, like, what you do, I said, you know what? I'm going to take 90 days and I'm going to visit every single place I can in our great worldwide organization. And I'm going to learn a lot about what ails us because what all of you think ails us may be right, may not be right. But one leadership lesson that I always talk about is in a turnaround, when everything is broken, determining what's the best thing to start with gives you the best area for success. Finding out what that first thing to start with is the hardest thing in the world. And so, my way of doing it was to just get out there and and, and the concept of listening and learning before I led was born. And so, what that generated to your question, how the culture is uh, very quickly. People, while incredibly resistant and angry when you went to talk to them, uh, you begin to sort of break down the barriers. I'm an easygoing person. I don't ask a lot of really deep questions. I'll walk up to you. You're working. It's 2 o'clock in the morning or 2 o'clock in the afternoon and you know, somewhere in the bowels of an airport or a hangar. Uh, and I would find people and just walk into rooms where it was, um, well, hostile would be an understatement. Uh, You know, you people that haven't been paid their contract. So they're, they're they're angry people with families and livelihoods that they feel are threatened. And then some guy in a suit doesn't have a background in this industry, walks in and wants to chat. It's like, yeah, I got your chat right here. Right. I mean, it was, it was a a pretty difficult thing, but I always hung in there. I always went right into the middle of the room and I didn't move and I answered questions and they yelled and screamed, you know, things like, yeah, we've heard all this crap before. And, and and I, I'd you have the CEO of the company has been here at two o'clock in the morning asking you a very simple question. How can I help? Tell me what's wrong. Tell me what I can do. And I can't I, I can't promise I'm going to fix everything you say, but this is all going to go into a sort of a boiling pot where I'm able to really get and discern what may be the first thing to start with. The, the power of voice, this is back to culture, is that it's not what you think the culture is. Is what your team thinks the culture is. And they don't think about culture. They just think, as a human, do I feel valued? Is my voice heard? Is my workplace safe? Is my workplace, you know, general? Do I, am I, you know, that, and that's how a a good culture is built because I like coming to work. I want to do the right thing. I want to put an extra bit of effort for those things. That's the objective. But getting there, there is no back to our early conversation. There is no right way of doing that. There's no. There's no book written. Oh, there's a hundred books written about it. But for me, knowing my strength and skill set and connecting with people, I went about it in that regard, and and that's how we went through it. And it took a while, and the damn near killed me. I had this massive heart attack and ventral heart transplant and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> I don't recommend that part, by the way. <laughs> so that's you know again. There's a, there's a lot more behind that. Clearly. But uh, but that's the general way I went after it.
0: Yeah, and speaking, you mentioned the heart attack. What uh, impact did that have on your relationship with your family, and then your business? <coughs>
1: um, well, with my family, uh, it was obviously traumatic. Uh, the thought of of, of dad at an early age, you know, passing away and losing it. So we had that trauma. My youngest son who was about to graduate uh, from uh, college. Uh, was an entering freshman in high school, and and so you know he and I he was a big athlete, so we talked about you know heart with regards to grit and courage and endurance, and you know that's a, a famous word and analog that everyone uses. And so he was very puzzled about you know with dad getting a new heart, was that going to change me? And so you know interesting things like that that were happening. And then there was the decision of whether or not I would return to work after such a massive thing. It's like why would you go back? And then back to the business side of it. What impacted not only the decision to return, but my ability to return was in the 37 days that I was working, you know, before I had the heart attack, I connected with a lot of people directly and indirectly. What we just talked about this listening tour, Um, the unbelievable response from employees all over the world uh, with regards to the get better, come back to us. It created this, this amazing energy. of of not only thoughts and prayers being directed at me, but also for me, it just verified that the people that I had inherited here were indeed have lots of pride, lots of professionalism, lots of caring, and lots of ability to to take care of our customers as well. And so just reinforced. So, you know, after these bags of mail would come in and my kids were read it in my hospital bed and all that, it was clear that we needed to go back. And, and then, you know, there's a lot of work strategy things that we did around that. But uh, but the business side, you know, I, I am no different. People often ask, hey, gee, when you have a new organ, does it change you, especially something as meaningful as your heart? I am the same person that I've always been. I am incredibly more grateful for every day and every and everything that I do. I'm open to new possibilities all the time. When you wrote to me on LinkedIn and... You know the, the publicity team looked up. It's like, you know, he's a young guy. He has a few followers, and you know, no need to do that. I'm like, why not? Um, you know, and and it's the kind of person that I've learned to be even more of than before. And from a business perspective, it was like, uh, you can't knock my ass down. So come <laughs> <on>. <laughs> exactly. um, it provided, it, it you know, it, it did give us uh, quite a bit of lift, and it really began to rebuild. But it started with the personal connection that I wa- I made with so many people.
0: I know for me personally, one of the difficult events in my life was during my elementary school career, I was pretty much bullied by the kids and the teachers, but because of that, I had a chip on my shoulder and something to prove, which is one of the reasons I've been able to grow the podcast and, you know, help start off my career. What is your perspective on why so many immigrants and people with untraditional childhoods and backgrounds go on to become highly successful?
1: I think you just said it. I mean, you're just motivated. It's like you know what? I'll show you. It's like uh, you don't you don't believe me. You don't think, and you get cast aside, and it hurts. And uh, but you come back, and 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 you also don't have a lot of backup. Meaning again, in a in a social economic background like I had, I didn't have another option. You know, you went to high school, of course, and then you graduated, and you know, you found someone to be with, and you had a family, and usually you went to work, and Some line of work that one of your relatives or somebody knew each other. My dad was a meat cutter, a a butcher, uh, and uh, and and he wasn't a wise, educated person necessarily. But even he had the uh, he would take me to work uh, during the summers for a day or two and have me help around the you know the the thing. And he he would say you know mijo, if if this is what you want to do, I can help you. But it was always this: there's something out there that's different for you. Um, And so you know there is there is a work ethic and this, this factor of, of drive that I think motivates people like that, that not everyone usually has because they have a lot of things to fall back on. And so I think that's what it does.
0: And speaking of work ethic, um, sitting here today, many of you in our audience sometimes contemplate uh, the cost of success. Do you have any regrets?
1: You know, I, I've always answered the question whether it's like the regrets are, are a wonderful term um, but it's, 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 it's like irrelevant, but moot. It does. It doesn't it really matter. I mean, nothing's going to change. Yeah. Um, and so as I think back on all of those, of course, there are things I wish I could have done different or better, but somehow those mistakes, that different direction that you establish that, that you set that time, um, always drove, uh, strength. It's, it's, it's a stronger self in, in some ways, uh, a broader opening to a lot, so many other things. And so, you know, uh, I I just don't like to reflect on those regrets because, you know, there's just, there's nothing much I can do other than learn from it. Now, I will talk about the mistakes that I, and uh, the things that I wish I had done better and the learnings that I had from that. And I talk about that all the time publicly, Uh, CEOs in this country and others call me all the time for crisis management, for, you know, proxy. I mean, I might, you know, again, my, my, my book covers this unbelievable swath of, Uh, Multitudes and layers of all these different things, Um, and so you develop that that level of of knowledge and experience. But you know the the only regret is that I didn't know the things that I don't now I know now earlier, which a lot of people say, which is when your opportunity came up. I said, you know what? He probably has a young audience. You know, it may sound like a you know old dude talking about all this stuff, but I I think I've learned the hard way, and there's no reason for everyone to repeat those same mistakes
0: yeah i agree and of your decades of experience of being a leader what is one moment that you think you'll never forget and why has it been so impactful
1: um as some of your listeners might know and you might know uh, at united we had a very significant issue with the dragging and, and and uh of a customer that went viral i mean it was probably one of the first viral moments in a corporation's industry. I mean, it was back in 2017, um, so it seems like just recently. But it, you know, it started with Twitter, and I don't think anybody really knew the reach of Twitter. The video went broad. Um, the man had said he was Chinese, so it got it got. Somebody's told me I've had numbers between 500 and 800 million views on Weibo, the Chinese platform, and so I pissed off an entire country, <laughs> <laughs> big country. Um, And I think um, these are the moments, and this is back to regret, can I regret what I said initially? Uh, I could, but it didn't matter. Um, uh, And and so the the situation uh, was quickly, um, you know, the initial data was the facts were that, you know, there was no United employee involved in that whatsoever. It was the Chicago police that the the incident went with, um, and there was only one United employee there. They were watching in horror like the rest of us. Uh, And and so that that incident um, crystallized a couple of things. First of all, in preparing, in my initial responses, which were awful and horrid for most of the reasons that I won't even bother, but you get a lot of guidance and you uh, you get a lot of advice from people very quickly. This is back to why I've learned to seek advice from people that I know have the best interest. Because in that moment, in that sort of rushed moment, You know, everybody's running around, you got to do this, you got to do this, and that was done, and it turned out to be bad. And then once you go one bad, then you got to try to fix that one, and you get into this little cycle. So I stepped back from all of it, and this is back to your point and moment. In going on live TV on Good Morning America a couple of days later, where you know they're just loaded for bear, right? It's like, (laughs) oh, yeah, we got another CEO, he's going to come in here, he's going to babble on about this and try to blame people, whatever they might be thinking, but they couldn't wait to get another CEO kind of on the hot seat. Um, and the prep that I had with all the experts about what to say and how to say it, how to tell the story that it wasn't indeed United employees, it was just we were affiliated with it, not doing all of that stuff. We we're, were going through it in the middle of the night. This is to your question. I uh, I dropped to my knees, and I'm not a pious person necessarily, but you know I looked kind of upstairs. <laughs> And, and 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 sought counsel and what came to me in a weird calming way was my grandmother back to her uh it was like she never complain she never she would never blame anyone she would never do any of that stuff so i'm thinking i am going to go on live tv with tens of millions of people and try to craft a story that says you know hey don't be mad at me it wasn't me kind of thing or what i went and said it was it was an awful situation I own it. We let these policies and procedures that govern our thing get in the way of doing what's right for a human. And that should never have happened. And here's what we're going to do about it. And uh, what was funny about it is the gasp that you heard was not only from the producers in her ear, because they're like, wait, wait, he's supposed to try to dodge around this. And what other questions can we ask him when you say, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm awful. Um, But the louder gasp was from my team, who was like, wait. (laughs) <laughs> not supposed to say that <laughs> um, so the the moment there is my upbringing, my heritage, uh, using my grandmother sort of as a, as an analog for that, is what what allowed me to have that conversation. And to this very day, I can tell that story very freely and openly. And all the business cases that are written in all the different schools have have interestingly evolved from initially what a jerk, what a stupid guy this white guy was to. Oh, now that we know the whole story, um how indeed it it's the right way to fix. And I think the phrase that I use, it's it, it is never too late to do the right thing. And I think that's the philosophy I went in there. But that's how it came about. So that was probably a pretty pointed moment. You would say, well, getting my new heart was cool. Yeah, it was. On my birthday, even cooler. And so I've had a lot of wonderful moments, but the one that's most compelling is this concept of telling the truth uh, and just being owning things and moving on.
0: And we wrap it up here. What would you say, do you want people to remember as your legacy?
1: You know, in my final note, when I left United, uh, I wrote a long note about a lot of different things, and there was two things that I wrote that are, are pointed. And, and first of all was, I said, I arrived to change United, but at the end, United changed me, but from a legacy perspective. I stopped and I had the lights in the large auditorium turn on into the crowd. I said, you know, we together have built what's in this room. These people, you leaders, what you've done, you are my legacy to carry this, this motion forward. And to this day, with my successor in place and uh, the COVID aspect, you know, United's beginning to come out of it, you know, kind of ahead of everyone else. And that legacy of, of durability, of culture. Uh, Their tagline and their advertising is good leads the way their efforts around sustainability by far the largest. All of those things are a product of the team that was so broken when I first started transformed them into a workable family. And now they're really shining.
0: All right, everyone. Well, that wraps it up for today's episode. We'll have a link posted. We'll see when this airs, but we'll eventually update the episode description with Oscar's new book, Turnaround Time, that details and goes more into depth with his story over at United and as a leader. But all right, everyone, that wraps it up. And thank you, Oscar, for taking the time to join. It was a pleasure.
1: Thank you.